The world is like a ride at an amusement park. And when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. I can tell you from experience, the effect you have on others is the most valuable currency there is. Don't think. Feel. It is like a finger pointing away to the moon. Don't concentrate on the finger or you will miss all that heavenly glory. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Hey brothers, welcome back to the Liberation Mental Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Gregorides. I hope you are exceptionally well and happy and healthy wherever you are in the world listening to this. Today's guest is a very powerful individual, someone who's got a strong message to share uh, and someone who is is real. There's just no other way to put it. He's real. And I use that word very sparingly considering I was involved in a project that had that word in the title and the person I worked with was one of the fakest people I ever met. So I don't throw the word real around easily. Dominique is is very real. And, and what we discussed today, there's a couple of topics, but the main one we cover is sex addiction. And man, this dude is so open and honest and vulnerable about what he shares that actually uh, I consider myself to be an open and honest person, but goddamn, he takes it to the next level. And you know, the the thing that he shares is such a it's such an important topic to address for us as men because you know, that's a big part of being a happy, healthy man is being sexually fulfilled and having a, a healthy relationship with your sexuality. And Dominique really explains that in detail and gives us some powerful strategies on how to make sure that that's the case. So without further ado, I will leave him to it. Let's dive into the next episode of the show with Dominique Cartuccio. Enjoy. Hey, brothers, welcome back to the Liberation Mentor Podcast. I'm here with Dominique Cartuccio, who is the host of the Great Man in Podcast. I'm so happy to have him on. I went on his show a couple of months ago. Uh, the guy's just got a great vibe. I love the work he's doing. And just wonderful to have you here, Dominique. Thanks for coming on, brother. Hey, man, it's an honor to have you on. Our, the episode that we did together on how to design excellence into your daily life is um, is really doing a lot of service to my community, my listeners. So thank you, man, for what you do. Sure. I love that you use that word service because I, my whole thing, um, I don't know if we mentioned this, it's been a while since we did that show. So I, I can't remember if we discussed it on there, but now I'm not setting, I'm not really setting goals anymore. It's my new thing. I've just decided not to set goals. I'm experimenting with something else, which is instead of setting an actual goal of, let's say I want to make X amount of money this year, or I want to do this or I want to do that or achieve that. Now I just ask myself the question, what kind of person would naturally achieve those things? And then I try to embody the the answer I come up with to that question. So if uh, the, 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 the thing I'm trying to embody now is, is service. So I love that you use the word service. Man. And already this year, I'm, I'm trying to focus on being of service. I'm sure that's something with which you're familiar, uh, deeply familiar. I'm deeply familiar and I'm smiling over here because we talk about not setting goals anymore. I, I'm with you on that, brother. Like I, I used to be this goal setting and goal crushing machine. It was kind of like, you know, I grew up playing sports. And then when I, I spent 15 years in financial services, I ran a sales team. Like we were all about numbers and setting goals, crushing. And then in my personal life, I found that the only way that I could be motivated to do things was to set these goals and crush them. And I would, 
I would do things like, oh, I'm going to spend 50 days not watching television. And I'm going to do 100 days no alcohol. And those were actually like really useful exercises for me. But uh, I, I remember like where that started to shift for me. Mm-hmm. I wrote an article about this too, was when, uh, I think the title of the article is called, Why I Broke a 137-Day Meditation Streak. And it was because like, I, I was always about these streaks, these goals, like these numbers. And I found myself as like I was on day 100 or 131. Actually, it started way earlier than that. But I started to recognize that my meditation practice felt more like an obligation to the streak mm-hmm. than it did like, like actually it deepening my practice of mindfulness mm-hmm. and presence and being with what was. I was only showing up so I could check the box and the quality of my practice suffered. And I remember there was this day where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to break the streak because I'm not like the streak no longer matters to me. And it's actually inhibiting who mm-hmm. I want to be, like to your words, like the, the kind of man I wanted to be. And what was really funny, Nick, was as soon as I made that, as soon as I like let go of the streak, the goal, mm-hmm. like I, I actually felt like a resurgence in my desire to meditate again. So I actually meditated the next day. The, the streak actually kept mm-hmm. going. And then the day after that, I was like, today I don't want to. So I'm not going to, I'm going to break the streak. And, and then I started up again and I've never counted again. And I've actually set far fewer goals mm-hmm. since then for that exact same reason, man. Yeah. It's, it's almost, uh, I also found with me is like, I'm, I'm so ambitious that I'd set these ridiculously, um, I guess, ambitious goals. And then often I wouldn't hit them and I would just get, so down on myself and beat myself up, right? And I, I guess that's another reason I, to add to the one that you've just described is that it um, sometimes starts to feel inorganic and a little bit forced. But also, yeah, it, it's like, it's more instinct for me that I've just decided I, I'd, I'd rather just embody a couple of, of themes or, or um, ideals. And, and that to me naturally makes me get the things I want anyway, right? If I'm like, if I'm giving service to others, then I'll get the goal of, getting X number of clients or whatever it might be in my business because, you know, I'm becoming excellent. And so that reflects back at me. I mean, that's just a thought, right? Other people might do really well with goals and they might need those hard markers. But I guess for guys like you and I, we, we're trying something different and it seems to be working. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's timely conversation, man. Cause one of my mentors, he's, um, he's become a really close friend and he's also a digital marketing genius. His name is George Bryant. And, um, and George, George asked me a question recently. He's like, you know, with respect to your podcast, Dominic, what do you like, what's holding you back from going all in with it? And actually one of my fears, I said to my, I said to George, you know, one of my fears is that this, the message won't reach as many listeners, as many men, as I know that it could and help them. Like, I'm, I'm afraid that it won't like have that the kind of reach, or be as be as popular as you you hope it would be. Is yeah, it's probably a better way of saying it. It's probably a better way of saying it. Like it won't be as popular as I would want it to be. And he's like, okay, that's interesting because what that does is it places you squarely in a place of scarcity and transaction. And mm-hmm. I'm like, scarcity, I get. Transaction, tell me more. And he goes, well, if if what you're doing now is trading your content in your interviews for listenership. If you're trading, like, it's like, I will, then, I will now share this or I will um, bring on this guest or I will cover this topic because I think that we'll, I will exchange it for a broader listeners. 
then it becomes a tra- transactional relationship. And he's like, the paradox that you need to hold is, of course, you're trying to reach as many men as you can who need to hear your message because you want to be of service to them. But the starting place can't be, I want more listeners. I want more listeners. It's who is Dominic and what does he Mm -hmm. stand for? And what you have to say needs to be said regardless of anyone, like whatever the numbers are. Like the numbers will show up as long as like you are standing in a place of authenticity and and that like that, that that little subtle shift, and I don't know how clear I've been in articulating that, but mm-hmm. that little subtle shift has taken a lot of pressure off of me to think about: you know, is this what they want to hear? Is that what they want to hear? Is this the you know the phrasing of the subject line? And more puts me in the place of like, how can I share honestly, truthfully, from the man I want to be? Because that energy is what the men who need the help, who need the work, will connect to. Mm. Yeah, a lot of what you've just said resonates with me, obviously, because I have my own podcast as well. And I funny enough just checked the numbers before we um started recording this show. And and I, I get this that your your mentor's idea of wanting to overcome the transactional nature of it. I totally understand that it's it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time. I I reframe it in a slightly different way. And for me, it's instead of thinking of what I can get back. And I'm not saying I, I'm comp- I do this all the time because look, we grew up, we've grown up in a commercial capitalistic society and we have been trained for a very long time to look at the bottom line and how you can, how, we've been taught to hustle, right? How you can make money and how you can get a bigger audience. And it, like, it's just the way we've been taught. So you can't, I don't think we could ever get to the point where you just do something totally for out of love and fun. But that's, that's, I guess, where I'm going with it is now that's the biggest factor that influences my decision to do pretty much anything is, is this going to be fun? Like, is it fun while I'm doing it, right? There's the idea of it, or even before when I'm planning or deciding whether I should do something, the question is, that does this excite me? Does this seem like fun? Does this seem like, um, and, and on the flip side of the coin is I'm, I'm very careful to make sure I don't feel trapped by anything either. Like does if I'm in a business relationship or if I if I create something that I have to do that makes me start to feel trapped and that starts to degrade the quality of my experience, then I cut it out or I choose not to do it, right? Because to me, if you if you're operating from that place of having fun and enjoying making your podcast and writing your articles and I don't know, doing your chartered accounting if you're an accountant or personal training, if you're a personal trainer, if you're operating from a place of enjoying it and fun and loving it, then the quality of your output is going to be good, right? You're going to be, then you're going to be putting good stuff out into the world, which means that the cream will always rise to the top. More people will listen to it. More people will want to work with you. More people will want to engage naturally because you're, you're doing good work, right? Whereas if you're just like, how can I, how can I get more listeners or how can I sell this or how can I, it, it, your work is a very, very different quality. Like I don't think Hemingway was ever thinking to himself, how many people are going to read this book? Like I hope I'm going to write for, for the biggest possible audience. He was just in the flow and creating and doing what brought him joy, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it really does, man. And, and, and we're starting to see even like some social platforms are starting to pick up on this. Like I know that Instagram and Facebook have been testing, taking away visibility of likes. Um, like, so for, for a, a one week, this just happened for a week on my Facebook, I couldn't see how many people liked my stuff and I couldn't see how many people liked 
other people's pictures. They would just say, you know, Nick likes this and so do others. And like all mm-hmm. the numbers went away. And I know on some people's Instagram accounts, the same thing has happened. And the thinking behind that was people are producing really crappy content or people are producing cookie cutter or copycat content on those platforms just to get the likes. And Gary Vaynerchuk talks about this too. If you if you follow him on Instagram, where if you don't know Gary Vaynerchuk is, he's basically a media mogul, um, and he's also a huge influencer across social platforms. He said people approach him all the time who are influencers on one of these platforms where they have like a significant following, and maybe sometimes even make a living off of it. Who who confide in Gary and say, like, say if it's a younger woman, I I'm tired of posting pictures of myself in tight clothing or in a bikini, but it's the only way that I get engagement. And, and when I, when I don't do that, like my engagement plummets by 80%, but I feel trapped now, like, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of us, and we, we, I don't want to laugh at her because I see men in corporate financial services who are like setting these core, you know, like I spent 15 years there who are setting goals, crushing goals, thinking that that's going to be the thing that makes them happy. Finally get the, you know, the, whatever the number one sales, number one salesperson and makes the money. And then, and all of a sudden he's miserable too. He feels trapped. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like, we all do our own version of that. And so that's why I'm like, I'm really down with what you're saying. Like, and, and there's also this paradox of when we are fully enjoying ourselves or when Ernest Hemingway is writing for himself, only. <laughs> and I, I read a book by Metallica. It was a biography of Metallica. The, the, uh, someone who wrote the intro said, Metallica loves their fans, but make no mistake, Metallica writes the music for them first, second, and third. There you go. Right? Like they love one of the best bands of all time. Yeah, that's great. That, that's really cool. I actually want to read that um, biography. I, I'm, I'm a, a big fan of Metallica. And I, I never would have thought that. Like that's that's that they... They write, they're creating music for themselves. That's really cool. It's probably why, in fact, it's definitely why they're so successful. Yeah. And that's cool. I mean, that's, it's, that's what I'm, I've been really focused on. And it sounds like you're the same. Like, like I wanted to have you on the show, not because you've got X following. It's because I thought we'd have a cool conversation, right? Like, so, <laughs> yeah. And, and yeah, I hope that shines through in, in, in my work. And I'm sure, it, I know it shines through in yours because I've listened to some of your stuff. Um, Dominique, Probably the the main re, the main uh, thing that I, I felt that you could help the listeners with, and that I, I wanted to talk to you about, is what you've put in your application for the the episode. Is I, I ask all guests to list five talking points, and you put one of yours: the making of a sex addict, the life path that led me to four years of sex addicts anonymous. And this is a, a topic that I feel is so important. We spoke about it a bit when I was on your show. I think it's something that a lot of people, they instantly kind of resist when they hear it or they don't want to talk about it or there's a lot of shame and guilt and negative emotions around it. And I also think that the world in its current state has trained us to believe that things like porn are just okay, right? It's And, and I think that uh, I really appreciate that you, you're out there educating people about the damage that it can do. and I'd love for you to, to share that journey so that hopefully you can help some of those listening. Uh, and I guess the main thing that I would say to you and to anyone listening as well is that this is an area in which people like Dom, I guess people like myself and anyone who loves you and cares about you 
should not have any judgments on you, right? And including yourself, you should not make any judgments on yourself for, you know, if you watch porn or if you're addicted to sex or anything like that. I mean, it's tough, right? Those things are hugely like uh, ensnaring and alluring, right? And and they, they work on a, a deep level that's designed to appeal to our biological circuits. So like, I'm going to be straight up. I've used porn in the past. There was a point where you probably used it too often. And there's a point where I was probably not too far off being a sex addict and, you know, I'm owning it. And I, and I guess you get where I'm coming from with this, right, Dom? There's nothing to be ashamed of, right? Like, and, and I think that that's, a, that's an important way to preface it. Absolutely, man. There's first and foremost, there's no judgment whatsoever from my end, because when you really start to understand how we've ended up here, there's a logical sequence of behaviors that wherever you are in your journey, maybe you have a beautiful relationship with your sexuality. Maybe you have some things that you would like to clean up, or maybe you're like I was where there's uh, there's some compulsions and destructive elements of, of your behavior that feel rough. Like there's no, there's no judgment whatsoever because the life conditions that like you've experienced have led you to where you are. And so I'll share a little bit of my story. And before I do that, you know, one, one thing that is an entirely different conversation for another day, Nick, but just about the porn issue mm-hmm. about porn, I don't want to even call it an issue. I, I actually don't think porn is the problem. I think mm-hmm. the men who run the porn industry are the absolute problem. And I think that we need to really be pointing our fingers because the only people running the porn industry are men. They are, you know, like I'll probably stop it there. But the, the short of the story is I, I know some women who are the top 10 most downloaded actresses in that arena. I've mm-hmm. had a chance to go behind the scenes and talk to some of them. I see how the structures have been laid out. I understand the porn that's being produced and how they're taking you down a slow destructive path in some respects that um, mm-hmm. can deteriorate behavior all for clicks for money. So porn in and of itself, like the, the, the act of people having sex on screen can be quite beautiful, but the way it's being chosen to be portrayed by the people who have the power is destructive. And there's a whole series of other porn outlets, some, some run by women like Erica mm-hmm. Lust and others where it's quite healthy. And, and so I just want to be, I want to set that as the stage because I know you just mentioned porn and I know that sure. you've got a particular relationship with it. Um, there's a lot more to be said, but I had to put that out there. But, you know, I, I appreciate that. It's, it's an idea that um, I don't want to say I've never considered it. I've considered it briefly. Truth be told, I'm on the, I'm the kind of guy who, <laughs> if you show me like, some porn that's been created by a woman that's very respectful and kind of got great lighting and there's an emotional angle and it's kind of, you know, it's done in a tasteful way. It still flicks the switches within my brain, the biological switches that start a process of events, which lead me down a pretty negative path. Like I'm sure you sound like someone, one of the men who doesn't have that issue, but for me, I'm at the point where, I don't believe that there's certain men who can have a healthy relationship with porn. Like, as I said, certain men, um, myself being, being one of them for me, like it's, I guess it's almost similar to alcohol, right? Like some guys can have a beer every now and then. Right. And some guys have one beer and then that means, okay, I'm going to have another five beers and three shots of tequila. And the next thing I know, they're lying in a gutter. Right. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yes. So that's, that's just where I'm at. Like, and, and I think there's also certain men out there who, they're at a point where they just can't, they can't afford to, 
I mean, they can't even pick up a copy of Playboy or Penthouse because that starts the process again. You know what I mean? It starts. Totally. Yeah. But anyway, I, I do take your, your point on board and I know there's validity to it. Yeah, man. And I just want you to know, like, I really appreciate you knowing where your, where, where your position is and like what's mm-hmm. healthy for you and honor that by all means. And the one curiosity I would have is just like, if, if, if porn was like, if it was distributed and filmed in a different way, and if it mm-hmm. was, if, if like you were raised different, like if, if like, if it wasn't delivered the way that it's been delivered, would we have fewer problems with it? Do you know what I mean? And, sure. uh, we can leave it. We can leave it there. So, my story is: I'm 41 years old now. From the years of 2013 to 2017, I spent four years in Sex Addicts Anonymous. I'll talk about why I ended up there in the first place. But I no longer identify as a sex addict. I have a healthy, loving relationship with my sexuality. There's still stuff that I'm cleaning up. There's residue from decades of living differently and. But I, I just I, I want to be very clear that I spent four years in sex addicts anonymous. Do not identify as a sex addict right now. Okay, so in December twenty eighth of two thousand and twelve, my girlfriend at the time and I, uh, the f- only woman that I'd ever fall in love with in my life, like the only woman who was able to get close enough to me and to my heart to open up basically my this thing that had been under uh, lock and key, which is my heart. It was our first trip together that we flew to Colorado where we were going to spend the new year and we were going to go skiing. So we were going to spend one night in Boulder, Colorado before driving to Breckenridge. We check in to the St. Julian Hotel and I go into the bathroom to take a shower. I come out and her face is pale and she's holding my cell phone and she throws it at me and runs out the door. And I open up the phone to find out where she was. And I looked at the thread, the text message thread that she was on. And it was one of probably a dozen strings of text messages with other women that were as salacious and hurtful as anyone could ever not hope to see, right? Mm -hmm. And pictures and fantasy scenarios. And what ended up happening was... When she came back into the room, I was so desperate and scared to, that I was going to lose her that I I said, I think I have a problem. And I think I need to go see a therapist. I think I need to go to Sex Addicts Anonymous. Now, for the months leading up to that, I had had these, this, this, this unique sensation of as my love was growing for her, and as I felt closer and closer to her, I also felt equally. I actually, I felt more and more trapped by that. I felt scared as she got closer to me. And I found myself like wanting to step out on her more. And I'd never cheated on anybody before. Like I never thought I was capable of cheating on someone. Like I just, I, I, I never thought that I could be that guy because I was the guy of integrity. And every other area of my life, like you could hold me out and be like, Dominic's a guy you can trust. Dominic is the leader that we would follow. Like that guy's a model citizen. And I pretty much was in every other area of my life. This area, for whatever reason, whatever line I would set for myself on my behavior, especially with respect to the woman that I love, like I couldn't figure it out. I had such great discipline everywhere, but then I would go watch porn or then I would go send sex messages to other women. And then on three separate occasions, I actually stepped out and slept with other women. And in one case, unprotected with another woman. 
while I was having unprotected sex with my partner. So I put her at potential risk. Sure. And so I'd looked up stuff about Sex Addicts Anonymous during that period of time. I'm like, am I a sex addict? And I took these online quizzes that put me on the fence because sex addiction, I would even ask your listeners, like if, if you're listening right now, like what do you even think of when you think of a sex addict? Right? Do you think of a guy wearing a trench coat who exposes himself? Like, do you think of a Harvey Weinstein? Do you think of like, what do you think of? There's like, there's this huge, huge category of potential mm-hmm. people that can fall into that. And for me, when I took this quiz and some of these questions were, were really jarring, like behavior that's potentially like criminal and in some cases very criminal, I'm like, no fucking way do I ever want to get caught up in that stuff. Like that's not at all where I'm coming from. So I, I, I never took that seriously. But then my girlfriend, I broke her heart. And there I am in that moment, like on the bathroom floor in the St. Julian Hotel in Boulder, Colorado, where I'm trying to get her to stay with me. And the lifeline, the thing that, that gave her confidence that I was going to stay was, or that, that she could hang around was me entering Sex Addicts Anonymous. And it took me about three months of actually doing the inner work before I realized that I had to be there for me, not to save the relationship, that I had to be there for me. And I'll pause here, Nick, because I think potentially we could go two different directions. We can go to like what happened over those period, that period of time, like with my, with my partner, mm-hmm. or if you think it's more useful, we can go back in time to kind of like how I ended up there in the series of behaviors that, that led there that maybe a lot of your listeners can also kind of see from their early life. And yeah, that sounds, that sounds more interesting to me, to be honest. Okay. Yeah, and, the, yeah, the sec- and I'm sure it'll be more interesting to everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. So the making, yeah, the making of a sex addict. I mean, I have um, a two-part series on my podcast where we where we talk about this, and my mm-hmm. my podcast partner Brian interviews me, and we go into all the details. So I'll kind of hit the high points, and if you're interested, you can come over and listen to the other part of it. Mm-hmm. I grew up Catholic schoolboy, um, seven years of Catholic schooling, in a very loving household, uh, but one that was like really, really uptight when it came to anything sexual. So like an example of that would be if on Friday night, my family was watching like a movie, which was great. Then like it would turn into this sexual scene where a woman's top would come off. My parents would lunge across the couch and be like, don't look. And they'd cover my eyes and, 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 and like, and, and then, and then they'd be angry. You know what I mean? They'd be like, Ugh, like, why did, why do they have to show something like, and there would be tension in the room that would make my gut, like my stomach churn mm-hmm. while at the same time, I'm like, I wanted to see that. <laughs> that was all, that was awesome. You know? <laughs> so like, like immediately there was this, there was this, um, flooding of emotion of that's awesome. And it's wrong, right? Mm-hmm. Very early on, this is awesome and wrong. And also layer on top of that, like what I, the message that I learned in Catholic school, and this is not everybody's experience in Catholicism or Christianity, but it was like, you're going to hell if you have premarital sex or if you masturbate, you think about these things. So like, as I started to get older and like, you know, my 11, 12, 13 year old years where I discovered things like masturbation, when when, (laughs) the first time I discovered masturbation is a silly story. My parents who were always like flawless and making sure I never watched like MTV or like R-rated movies, they rented White Men Can't Jump. Woody Harrelson and Wesley Snipes, loved it. Wesley Snipes, but don't yeah. forget Rosie Perez. 
Okay. Oh, so there's this scene in there where Rosie Perez is topless. And I, I must've like when my parents were gone one day, I put the, the, the tape in my VCR this is how long ago it was. And I just sat on the couch, play Rosie Perez topless, rewind, play <laughs> boner. And I like, I'm rubbing myself on my, like my blue sweatpants. And then I just five, six, seven, eight times. And all of a sudden I felt this surge of energy collecting my body. It was like a runaway train. And then boom, like, like I blacked out. And when I came to be like, my pants were wet and I had no idea what had just happened. Damn. I actually didn't know what masturbation, but that was like how it happened. And I was like, that's fucking amazing. And I'm 13 years old now. And I knew that this was wrong, Nick, right? Because of- Well, I guess you, you, you believe that it was wrong, right? I guess is- Yes. Because knowledge generally has a, a, a truth component, right? Yeah. It was, uh, my experience was it was wrong and I have to hide this, but yet this feels so good. Mm -hmm. And at that time in my life, I was switching schools. I was a very anxious kid. I went from being like the big fish in this very small Catholic school to being lost in a sea of other people at this public school. And I was a highly sensitive dude where I would come home and, and like there would be like these gut-wrenching pains in my stomach from feeling like an outsider or not belonging. And the only mechanism I had to deal with the pain and the frustration and the anxiety is masturbation. Mm, interesting. So like immediately very early on, my, uh, my relationship with my own sexuality became numbing. It became escape. It became what I did when I was overwhelmed or frustrated. And as an early kid, like, uh, like early on, it was like four, five, six times a day. Like I tore myself up, dude. Like Damn. a young dick is not ready to handle that. <laughs> and, and, like, and it wouldn't stop me because it felt like a pile of heroin that I could pull the crank on and be taken away from whatever pain. And, 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 and what, what that did over a period of time, man, was I actually started numbing, like as someone else would be numbing with alcohol or drugs or you know, bulimia or anorexia. It, it like it took away these feelings and sensations that were overwhelming to me because I didn't have any other tools sure. of talking or meditating. So I'll pause here, man, like because I, I could keep going and going, but like <laughs> where do you where do you want to take this? Sure. I mean, yeah, like it's uh, interesting. I wasn't expecting you to ask me that question. Um I guess the main <laughs> the main thing is to maybe impart some wisdom to the to the listeners as to how if they feel they're at a point, I guess you tell them to go to Sex Addicts Anonymous, but I mean, what, like, what kind of advice could you give to someone who feels that they're, they're in a similar kind of place? Like, yeah. Okay. Let me, I will answer that. Let me close the loop on then where I was. Cause I think it'll help you answer that question. Okay. So what I've come to learn in doing this introspection, the reason why I shared that story with you and your listeners is if you look back at the early parts of your life and you look at these three Fs that I categorize, your, your family, your friends, and your faith or lack thereof, these are three biggest, the biggest influences that I've seen in men's sexual lives. What did your family teach you growing up? What did your friends teach you about sex sexuality? What's accepted, what's not? Mm. And like, if you had a faith or you didn't have a faith, there's also like a... Um, an element there that also has a very strong opinion or even mm -hmm. an absence of opinion around what is okay, what's welcomed, sexually speaking. Mm -hmm. And you don't choose those things, you get socialized into them. 
Like mm. in my case, I said, my family was uptight around sex. So the message there was bad. It's wrong. Um, my friends, we didn't talk about sex, but when masturbation came to be during like our junior high school days, you were, you were seen as the weirdo, the pariah, if, if you did that. So then I had to hide that. And then faith, like what I was doing was wrong. So I felt mm. sinful and shameful. So all of these things, like a very natural curiosity around my own sexuality, as is for everybody, then became a very negative, shameful, sinful experience that I had to hide from the world. Mm. And I imagine many of your listeners feel the same way, which created a public Dominic and a private Dominic. Okay. Like I had, I, like I bifurcated my life into a series of behaviors that the rest of the world could see, but then this private part of me that really liked going and watching porn, mm-hmm. that really liked, I dated the women I was supposed to on the surface, but then the, the woman I wanted to sleep with was that, like was someone yeah. I could never show anybody else. <laughs> that's what I want to do. Sure. And, and right, like, and, and you can see like this bifurcation. And I, I share this because someone who may be listening now could go, oh my God, that's my life. And I have judgment about myself around that. And I have this beautiful thing on the surface of this family but my wife doesn't know that I've got this kink on the side and whatever mm-hmm. that is for you, right? So I think to answer your question, man, you know, if someone, if like, if you're feeling like you're in that place where there may be, where you have compulsion and, um, and you, and you want to start to, to get smarter, more intelligent about this, I think the first place is to actually kind of go back in time mm-hmm. and, 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 and like, and unpack what you learned early on from your faith, your family, your friends. What stories or lessons did you learn? Go back and unpack some of these like seminal moments. Sure. Like for me, the first time finding my play, the first Playboy when I was seven years old, the Rosie Perez master, like the first masturbation. What was sure. your first sexual experience? Were you sexually abused? And you know, like, were you touched inappropriately? Like, what did those things teach you about your sexuality? It's interesting. I mean, this, the, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely rock solid advice, Dominique, and it ties into something that I found uh, in in my work, uh, my inner work for for myself, and also with the the men I work with. Is that you know I'm a big believer that um, every time you experience a trauma of any kind, unless the emotion that is associated with that trauma, and and emotion is always associated with trauma. Unless you allow the that emotion, which is emotions are energy, right? Which which the body uses, or, or, or like it's just a form of energy. Unless that energy is an emotion is felt completely and allowed to dissipate, it remains trapped in you and will continue to cause you to attract things at that vibration into your life, people, circumstances, and events. So when you have this experience with your parents and you feel you know, the, the, the woman comes on the screen and she's topless and they like cover your eyes and they say, that's disgusting. And there's this, you know, this overwhelming emotion of shame. Right. And then that gets you, because as a kid, you don't really know how to process that. You don't know how to deal with it. You don't know how to let that emotion be felt completely and dissipate and let go of it. Then what happens is throughout the course of your life, you will on a spiritual, mental and physiological level of attract people, events and things that are, again, as I said, vibrating at a similar level. So then you go out and do things that cause more shame because that energy is still in in you playing itself out. Does that make sense? 
a thousand percent. I mean, that was my life, man. Right. It, yeah. it was uh, like, I would, I would pull in girls or women um, who, who would be vibrating at that level. And then, then there would be a sense of shame after it would happen. Like after sure. the sex would happen or after our sexting, sexting would finish. So yeah, man, like you're speaking, speaking and truth. It's, it's, it's interesting because it, it's, and what I've realized is it's in all, all aspects of life. It's not just, it's not just uh, sexuality. It's also your finances as well. It's, a, it's almost like a mirror image, right? Like every, a lot of people have had trauma with money and like they, when they were young, their parents said something like money doesn't grow on trees. This is too expensive. And then that, that creates this feeling of guilt or whatever, or shame or lack when it comes to, to money. And then unless that trauma is revisited and processed and a lot, and that energy is allowed to dissipate, then again, they start attracting events similar to that in their financial life. And I guess it's the same in, with your sociality, right? Like with your, your friend group and how you interact with other people, like any traumas that you've had that aren't dealt with and, and completely played out or, or allowed to allowed, have been allowed to play out, then you'll just stay in that loop forever and ever and ever. And that is why, you know, there's a, I think it was either Plato or Aristotle who said the unexamined life is not worth limit, living. And I get that. I, that's why you have to figure out like what your patterns are and where all the stuff came from. And it's, it's hard work, but it's, I mean, to me, the, the, uh, yeah, I know it's tough to think back to the, the things that happened in your childhood or your early adolescence that were difficult and painful, but the alternative, uh, alternative is if you don't deal with that shit, that shit's just going to keep happening. Right. So like it's, it, to me, it's not even a choice. I have to go and deal with that stuff because I don't want it to happen again. Cause I don't want to deal with that shit again. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And maybe an example here would be even, uh, it was really useful for me and it maybe can crystallize for some of your listeners too, is one of my sponsees, um, in, in sex addicts anonymous. So if you're not familiar with like, um, the 12 step program, which is basically anything alcoholics anonymous, narcotics anonymous, sex addicts anonymous, we follow this 12 step program. As you, as you like, as you go through your recovery, you become a sponsor of someone who's like newer on their journey. And one of my sponsees was someone who like seemed to repeat this shame cycle. Like he, he loved dominatrixes who would shame him. That was his thing. And what, what I had a hard time understanding was like, why, why, why is that a part of your, like, why would you want to willingly be uh, like dismantled and shamed mm -hmm. through the sexual? And he was like, when I was a kid, my mother, like the first person that you ever love, she was domineering. She was overbearing and overwhelming and she would treat me like shit. And then after I felt at my lowest point, then she would bring me up and hug me and like bring me back. And, and, and there was like this cycle of feeling like he was flattened on the ground, run over by an 18 wheeler to then being lifted up. And, and the cycle in his household was always that way. Mm. So like when, when he became um, uh, old enough, sexually speaking, to start having sexual fantasies, well, the way that he'd experienced love or, or, or any kind of intimacy was this pattern of like, just step on me, humiliate me. And then like, I have this sexual release and then I feel bad about that because it like, it, it, it's replaying old trauma. Mm -hmm. And that became a thing for like 20, you know, like wow. in some cases I've seen men in those sex addicts anonymous rooms, empty their bank accounts just to get that sense, like to repeat that pattern. Sure. Sure. Wow. That's a, that's a fantastic example. And, and you know, the thing, the thing that I've realized is that 
again, we're coming back to the beginning of, of this part of the conversation is when I was saying like, there's no judgments is and almost everyone has stuff like this. I mean, there's, I don't think there's anyone on planet earth that doesn't have some kind of mild trauma from just being human, right? Growing up as a human being, right? There's, there's so many complex family dynamics and just so many pressures of life that are always interacting with us. And like, it's, we've all got shit to deal with. Right. And, and there's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. And I think the most important thing is just, if you are seeing negative things emerge in your life is to just make the decision that you're going to deal with them because it is better as you of all people I'm sure can attest it is better once you've dealt with these things. Like life is better now, right? Your, your sexuality is, as you said earlier, it's, it's, it's a healthy thing now, right? Yeah, it, it is. And it's still a work in progress. So like, to that point, one of the reasons why I left Sex Addicts Anonymous was my first two years were, were really powerful in my recovery. It helped me to go back in time. The reason why I, I, I suggested to go back in time first was like, that was one of the first steps we did in Sex Addicts Anonymous was to go back in time and to start to learn how we learned this behavior and what role it provided. And quite interestingly, like, <laughs> like the, the seeds of my sex addiction were formed when I needed a tool to navigate the stress and the emotion and the pain. Mm-hmm. So in a sense, like it became something I could actually have a gratitude for. It, it was like kind of what kept me afloat. It served, it served you in some way. Of course. Like yeah. all of our behaviors do, even if they're destructive over a period of time when they're left unchecked. Like at some point they emerged because there was some positive intention mm-hmm. on some level. Mm-hmm. Um, as, as, as horrible as the outcomes may be, like if we can look at it from that lens then you can understand why that behavior exists. Sure. So, you know, like the first two years of sex addicts anonymous was great. Cause it helped me to el- like eliminate all my bottom line behaviors of cheating or, you know, those kinds of things. But after those two years, I felt like I plateaued because there wasn't a lot of guidance or emphasis on how to establish a healthy, loving relationship with my sexuality. I see. I see. It's more just kind of, if you you keep rolling in the mud, you never really get clean, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? You got, you got to, once, at some point, once you've, you've uh, examined your shit and seen what the issues are and dealt with them, then you've got to take it to the next level, which is kind of like, looking for the good thing or, or looking for how you can engineer a positive relationship as opposed to just keep going back and keep dealing, keep rolling in the mud, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think that, that, that that's great. And, uh, and, and also like, I, I, I couldn't find anyone when I looked around the rooms, I couldn't, I couldn't identify a man who was like, I'm loving in my sexuality and like, here's how I've defined it. And here's how mm-hmm. that role plays in my life. Like there was, I, I couldn't find anyone there because the mud rolling was too prevalent. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but I see these people in my other life, like, you know, in, in the non-rooms, like non-rooms of Sex Addicts Anonymous, like other places where I'm like, wow, look at these healthy, loving, vibrant sexual communities where people seem to be fully expressed. I'm sure they have their own problems too. Mm-hmm, Maybe they're, mm-hmm. they're hiding or running away from, but it seems like they're much more liberated. What's going on over here? And I had a few coaches who helped to extract me from the Sex Addicts Anonymous process. And they were like, we're, like you're not an addict anymore. Like you're not an addict ever, but like you just had some behaviors and wonky shit that took you off path. Let's get you on this path of loving yourself. Mm. And through their guidance and supervision, I think not doing this on your own is a really smart thing. And I've like through therapy, Sex Addicts Anonymous and coaching, I've really had a lot of support around me that's guided me at different places and times to higher levels. Mm -hmm. So yeah, now 
through that process, I've, I've actually found that these things that used to have a really strong grip on me before, Nick, mm-hmm. like seeing a beautiful woman and feeling commanded to do something about it. Like, 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 oh my God, if I don't approach or if I don't seduce, <laughs> then a part of me is dying. And then like, and then feeling like, is that ever going to go away? Because like, it's, it's, it's like, that's actually completely gone away. And, and like, what's replaced that is this deep wow. craving for intimacy, right? Like this intimate, and it's always what I have been searching. I didn't realize it, but like, I've always been searching for like deep, meaningful, intimate connection with another human being who understands me and who can welcome me. And what's been fascinating is over these last few years, I've actually had sexual experiences with women where for the first time in my life, I couldn't get hard because they weren't in alignment with the kind of intimacy or connection that I was looking for, but they fit the old pattern of someone that I would have slept mm. with, except the new me, like that trauma, you know what I'm talking about? That was stored, yeah. that you were talking about that stored in my body. All of that old yeah. stuff that was stored up in my body that allowed me to get hard, even when I was out of alignment, I would feel guilt and shame afterwards, but I could perform in the moment. It, it doesn't exist anymore. My, my dick won't even stand up for it now. Mm, that's interesting. That's very powerful. Very, very powerful. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Dombo, I thank you for being so open and honest. And uh, I mean, I know that's what you do. So you've had practice, you know, sharing the story, but still it's, it's much, much appreciated. And I want to, I want to end the conversation um, because there's so much more to you than a, a recovered sex addict. I mean, I know you don't like to use that, that expression or, or someone who's, there's so much more to you than someone who just understands how to deal with um, sexual issues in their life, right? And, and, and you have, let's, let's get out of the mud, I guess, is a way to put it. And, and let's, uh, you've, you're a great coach and you help men feel great and, and live lives of authenticity and, and success. And you, uh, one of the things you put in the application was you wanted to discuss how to design a future you can't wait to live into. So I'd, I'd appreciate any tips you can share with me because I'm always wanting to do that. I'm always wanting to improve my, my future. Um, and also the listeners, what could you share with us? Yeah, cool, man. I appreciate that. So I, I wrote a book a few years ago called Design Your Future, Stop Drifting and Start Living. And I think in order to design your future, the first thing you need to understand is the number one enemy that, that stands in most of our ways from, from being intentional about the lives that we're living. And this enemy is called drift. And if you're a Napoleon Hill fan, Napoleon Hill wrote the book, Think and Grow Rich, which is basically the number one most best-selling business mm-hmm. and self-improvement book of all time. He, he went out over a 25-year period of his life and interviewed 25,000 people at the end of their lives who felt like they had not lived their fullest potential, right? that they had a life of regret, that they felt like they left chips on the table. He mined their secrets and he wrote this book called Outwitting the Devil. And the devil in this book is basically a distillation of the 25,000 people whose dreams were lost. And the devil's, mm-hmm. it's, wow, it's, it's, it's the number one most important book of my life. And I, and I recommend it to everybody. I'm just outwitting the devil. It's required reading for all of my clients, all the men who come to my mastermind, and it blows everybody away. It's just like, how, how do we not know about this book? And mm-hmm. the, the devil in this book says, the way that I enter the minds of people is through their habits. And once I get them to establish the habit of drifting, I can lead them straight towards the gates of hell. 
And drifting is this phenomenon where we think we're making conscious decisions, right? We're waking up every day. We think that we're actually intentional about our lives when in actuality, it's our habits, our patterns, our unconscious belief systems, our fears, our societal expectations, what we've been raised to believe. That is actually what's behind the wheel of our car while we and our consciousness is in the backseat or in the mm. fucking trunk sometimes. And that's why one day, one week, one month, one year bleeds into the next, one decade, one lifetime, and we wake up and say, where did the fucking time go? And usually the only sure. thing that wakes us up from a state of drift is something really powerful, an outside force that thrusts itself upon us, like getting an illness or like being dumped by someone or your business failing, something usually pretty crappy that will mm -hmm. wake you up. And while those wake-up calls can be beautiful transformational moments, like Nick, I know you've had them in your life where you look back on it and you're like, oh, that's what made me the man that I am today. I would never trade that experience. While you're going through it, it was torture. Mm -hmm. And you wouldn't wish it upon anybody, but you're like, I wouldn't be me without yeah. it. I, I don't want to do it again, yeah, even though life again. is going to give you that again, right? Like, <laughs> and here's the thing though. If those are the only things that wake you up from a state of drift, then how in command of your life are you really? Like, we sure. need to be the ones who wake ourselves up without the Mack truck hitting us. Because there are plenty of people who get hit by the Mack truck and, and, and don't get up. They're done. It's over. And what I'm a proponent of is recognizing where drift exists in your life and learning how to become a master of like waking up from that and then learning how to design a future that you can't wait to live into. And, um, and I can give you a couple of tips on that real quick, mm -hmm. but I, just, I wanted to pause before I go any further. Sure. Okay. And I'd, I'd love, uh, yeah, I'd love just a couple of tips. I mean, I know we're coming towards the end of the show, but I always try to leave, I, I'd like the guests to leave the listeners with some actionable um, steps that they can take. So if possible, that would be ideal. Great, man. So the best ways... So in the book, there's three steps uh, to break free from drift, awakening, disrupting, designing. What I mean by that is an awakening is creating awareness around the areas of your life that are limiting you or like there's a recurring obstacle in a theme. Now, an awakening is different than awareness. An awakening is that tipping point where you are ready to take action. You can be aware of stuff that's like not, you know, like you may be aware that porn is problematic in your life, but maybe there's someone who's like still using it. Well, then you haven't had the awakening yet to like actually take action to change that behavior. So if you're ready to take that mm -hmm. behavior, then the next step is disrupting, which is interrupting the pattern that is, that is not working for you. And mm. I talk about how like doing temporary abstinence periods, um, just to give you a sense and information of why that thing has its hold on you. Yeah. And just to see, I mean, it's, it's like uh, one of my clients has a relationship with alcohol uh, that, that he doesn't feel is, is that healthy. And as soon as he stopped for a while, he realized just how he didn't feel very good. Like, and just how much of an effect alcohol was having in his life. Right. And that, that's, so that's to me, I find that fascinating that you require that period of abstinence to actually just get, an idea, relatively speaking, of what this thing is doing to you. Yeah, I mean that's a great example because it. He was not only he was not only able to find out what its impact was on him, but he was also probably able to recognize those moments that triggered his desire to have a drink, right? And like, and we can start to see all those mm -hmm. micro moments mm -hmm. that we would normally drift into 
that behavior versus like when you take a temporary abstinence, it's going to be uncomfortable. You know, that's why I said before I took all these temporary abstinence periods from 50 days off of Netflix and television, because like sometimes I can over binge on TV or, you know, three months of not looking at my phone for the first hour before waking up because I could then get information about this compulsive need to just like dive into my phone. So these are disrupting your patterns mm-hmm. and your habits because those have a hold on you and that's where drift exists. And once you have that information, then the last step is designing. It's, it's like, what's the, new, what's the new relationship with this behavior that I want? And I did this with porn, for example. Like for me, I would take, I took four years off of porn in Sex Addicts Anonymous, wow. you know, and I've taken like, and, and then I introduced it back and didn't work the way that I wanted to. So then I took another temporary abstinence period. And then I introduced it back again in a way, like I designed what kind of porn I would look, I would look at, what I wouldn't look at, when I would look at it, when I wouldn't look at it. Like it gave me some parameters that said, okay, cool. And what's really interesting, Nick, is after I designed all of that, I really have no desire right now to look at any porn. I haven't looked at porn in six months. There's been, there's been no urge or pull, but like I had to go through that whole process for me of awakening, disrupting, designing, and constantly refining where I was able to get to a place where it's like, oh, I don't even need it. Mm. Wow, that's that's super powerful, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna literally order that book tonight, Outwitting the Devil. It sounds sounds like something that's right up my street. Dominique, uh Dominic, sorry, it's it's been such a pleasure to talk to you and um I really admire your vulnerability and also I, I sense that you're you're a very genuine human being. I got that that impression the first time we spoke, and, and it's something that I find is in exceedingly short supply in the modern world, and I, I just wanna I just want to honor you for that. And I really, really appreciate that. Thank you so much, my man. If, if the listeners want to find out more about you and what you do, what's the best place for them to go? Yeah, man. Um, thank you for those uh, lovely words, man. I appreciate it. The, we would love you to come over and listen to the Great Man Within podcast. It's anywhere that you can find um, where podcasts are hosted. And if you're interested in the episodes around sex addiction, I think it's like our first few episodes, maybe like within the first five, that have Dominic's four years in Sex Addicts Anonymous. And we do a ton of conversations around healthy sexuality and what it means to be a man. You'll see Nick's interview there. It's one of our more, probably like the last 10 or 15 that we've done. So yeah, come join us at the Great Man Within podcast. That's awesome. Yeah, and I can, I can just say um, that if you enjoy this, the type of conversations that, that I have here on Liberation Mentor, then you will love the Great Man Within. It's very, very similar. Yeah, and so so I highly recommend you got you guys go check it out. Dom, thanks so much for your time, man. Really appreciate you. Appreciate you too, brother. No other word comes to mind except powerful. That was that was a powerful experience for me. Just just talking to Dominique. I hope you guys got the same or as much out of it as I did. I wish I'd been able to listen to something like that when I was eighteen years old, or maybe even. 16 or maybe even 12 years old when the hormones started kicking in I'm sure I would have made healthier choices with regards to relationships uh, if I had some of the wisdom in that show hope you guys enjoyed that and I will be back next week with another amazing guest I hope you guys Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you're doing it with the best of your ability and pouring all of your passion and presence and love into it. Until next time, peace out. Peace out.